Avicii got his first record deal at the tender age of 17. And he rose to worldwide fame and prominence. His first album peaked in the top 10 of more than 15 countries. He looked like he had it all. Wealth, fame, success, popularity. But did he? Last month he died a long way from home uh, and alone from self-inflicted injuries. He had taken his own life, just 28 years old. And this month, his family released a statement that I want to read out to you. But before I do read it, I just want to say, uh, if there's any young people tuning out, tune back in, I just want to say, um, I've discovered something this week that shocked me, which is that I've learned about the biggest killer of men aged under 45 in this country. Do you know what it is? Suicide. So I want to just say to young men and to everyone else, uh, if you have, are struggling with thoughts about that, don't bottle it up. Talk to us. Come and talk to us. Your church loves you, and don't be embarrassed and feel full of shame. We're here for you. Okay, here's the statement from Avicii's family. Our beloved Tim was a seeker, a fragile artistic soul searching for answers to existential questions, an overachieving perfectionist who traveled and worked hard at a pace that led to extreme stress. When he stopped touring, he wanted to find balance in life to be happy and be able to do what he loved most, music. Listen to this. He really struggled with thoughts about meaning, life, happiness. He could not go on any longer. He wanted to find peace. You want that, don't you? Meaning, life, happiness, peace. Now this uh, letter, this statement, brings us right to the heart, the aching heart of our needs as human beings and our yearning for something more, our yearning for meaning, life, happiness, and peace. But where will we find them? Now the Bible has a whole book dedicated to these questions. It's called Ecclesiastes, in the Bible you, you have in your hand. Traditionally, in the Hebrew Bible, it was called Kohelet, which is a word that means teacher or preacher. It's right there at the beginning of chapter 1, the words of the teacher, Kohelet. And this is how the author describes himself. So it's great we have this book in the Bible about the search for meaning, the search for satisfaction, and wrestling with all the deep questions. But it's not a, a comfortable, neat and tidy, reassuring little book. Ecclesiastes has been described as strange, wild, peculiar, and disturbing. It's not a comfortable read, but that's the point. He's going after these hard questions that we have. He's going after our doubts. He's asking, what is life all about? And that means it's a book very much for our times because we live in a secular age and a time of questioning. Last week, we thought about the big question that the book raises, which is, what's the point? What's the point of it all? We thought about a key word which occurs more than 30 times in this book, which the New International Version translates as meaningless. It's not the most helpful way to translate it, as I explained last week. In the Hebrew language, this word is spelled, we'd spell it H-E-B-E-L, H-E-B-E-L, but the B sounds like a V, so it's hevel, hevel. And it literally means a breath, a puff of wind. A vapor. So the book opens with these words in, in chapter 1, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, 
says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Or, another way of translating it, merest breath, merest breath, all is mere breath. A breath goes out, you can't control it, you can't grasp it, it's here and gone, it's transitory, it's, it's over in a moment, and it, if you, if you, even if you could hold it, it would be empty. And the main point we, we learned last week was that life is just a breath, and work has no profit apart from God. And that was the general point. But this week we're getting more specific. Now remember, our writer is a believer in God. He is an orthodox Bible believer, but he is an explorer. He leaves the base camp of wisdom and he goes into the mountains of experience. And he also goes into the valleys of doubt. And today he's going to share what he's learned about three very important things. Three of the biggest things in our lives wisdom pleasure and projects wisdom pleasure and projects and I can guarantee that everyone in this room every single one of us is significantly impacted by at least one of these things the pursuit of wisdom the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of projects and what he does here is he pushes these things to the very limit surely one of them has got to work Surely one of them will give meaning to life. Surely one will help me find satisfaction and fulfillment. And he takes these three things that we tend to look to for meaning and purpose, and he sees through them all. But when we come out the other side, we're enabled to see more clearly. So firstly, wisdom. Have a look with me, chapter 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Now, I don't have to sell the benefits of wisdom in this city, do I? After all, Manchester is home to more than 90,000 university students, plus thousands of academics and educational professionals. Education is big business here. It's played a massive role in the city's renaissance. Manchester is a place to come for world-class education, isn't it? And many of you came here for that reason. Over 20,000 students in this city are international. In other words, people flock to our city to get wisdom. Now just think, come, come in and have a seat by the way, come in. Just think about all the effort and all the study of those 90,000 students and their teachers. All the hours and hours and months and months spent racking brains, poring over books and articles or peering down a microscope. All the essays and papers and practicals and periodicals and tutorials and seminars and lectures, all the late nights, all the early mornings, all the cramming, all to get wise. Why would anyone do that to themselves? It's because education makes us a promise, doesn't it? Education makes you a promise. It's the promise of wisdom, and it goes something like this. If I was, if I was wise... If I was wise, then I would be able to make sense of life. And I would be able to have some control over it. I could even be an expert. I could be an authority. I would, know, I would really know about things. And people then would look up to me, and I could be someone. Maybe it would give me an identity. More than that, it would give me answers. Give me answers. And so Ecclesiastes turns to wisdom, first of all, in his search for meaning. 
And in verses 12 and 13, he sets out his credentials. He says, I am the teacher, but I was also king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my mind, devoted my mind, to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. He's gone on this great educational quest, research, study, to find out how it all fits together. Now, how far did he get? It's quite impressive. Verse 16, have a look what he says. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, I've been, I'm wiser than any previous king. Now, who is this guy who says he's got the finest brain in the ancient world? The traditional view uh, that was around for many centuries was that it was Solomon. Solomon, after all, Solomon was a king in Israel, and he was famous for great wisdom. He asked God for it, and he got it. And also, Solomon had the resources to live the kind of life that we read about in this chapter. He was very wealthy. He pursued pleasure. He, he, he developed grand projects. It sounds like Solomon, but the writer never says that he is Solomon. He never names himself, but Solomon does name himself in the two books that were sure by him, Song of Songs and Proverbs. So why would he be anonymous here? And there are other signals that this might not be by Solomon himself. In verse 9, he says, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. But actually, there had only been one king in Jerusalem before Solomon. That was his dad. So this would be a kind of a strange claim to make, wouldn't it? I've been greater than my dad. <laughs> so the consensus nowadays is that this is a wise teacher, a professor, a philosopher, sometime after Solomon, who, who is speaking as though he's a king in order to make his case. He speaks as one who's had all the advantages of a king, as if to say, just imagine that you had unlimited time, unlimited resources, and just think what you could acquire with that. Just think of all the, the wisdom you could acquire and all the stuff. And what's his conclusion? Verse 13, he says, after all of that study, oh, my word, it's a heavy burden. It's a heavy burden. Does anyone here sympathize? You've, you find your studies to be a heavy burden. You've worn yourself out to get wise, and it was burdensome. Verse 15, he gives a conclusion in the form of a proverb. He says, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, this is a proverb sounds a bit like something you'd get out of a fortune cookie, doesn't it? What is it saying? It's a way of writing stuff that makes you kind of wrestle with it. Um, it the, that which is twisted refers to a problem that can't be solved. You can't fix this. There are things built into reality that we can't figure out. For all of your education, for all the knowledge you have, all the savvy, you can't straighten out every problem. Something always eludes you. Secondly, he says, that which is lacking cannot be counted. That refers to a lack of data. You're trying to find out the answers, but you don't have all the information. It can't be taken into account, and therefore, you can never find the answer. Now, that is frustrating, isn't it? Deeply frustrating. It's a picture of a frustrating scenario. Tied up in knots, and I can't straighten it out. 
needing to be decoded, but I haven't got the code, the code, I haven't got the data. John Wheeler was an American theoretical physicist. He was a collaborator with Albert Einstein. Wheeler was the one who coined the terms black hole and wormhole. And he wrote these words, we live on an island surrounded by a sea of ignorance. As our island of knowledge grows, so does the shore of our ignorance. You get that? The more your knowledge grows, the more aware you are of the shore of ignorance, of all the questions and all the things you still don't know. And that's, that's a picture of reality. And so this teacher says, in verse 17 and 18, this is the outcome of all his study. Have a look at with me. Verse 17, I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Chasing after the wind, what does that mean? You ever tried chasing after the wind? You can never catch it. But if you did catch it, what would you have in your hand? nothing and he's not saying don't be wise he's not saying he actually says madness and foolishness is even worse the message of the whole bible is that wisdom is a good thing but he is saying that at one level our intellectual pursuits are hopeless some problems can never be solved some information will never be found especially the really big questions in life more than anyone else, the intellectual person should be aware that the human condition is futile. No matter how much you search, you can't answer some of the fundamental questions of life. You know, science can show you how to construct an atomic bomb, but it can't tell you whether you should fire it. Remember the surprise bestseller, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time? Stephen Hawking, who recently passed away, an absolute genius. And the famous last sentence of the book read like this. If we, if we discover a complete theory, it should in time be understandable by everyone, not just a few scientists. Then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we and the universe exist. If we find the answer to that, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason. For then we should know the mind of God. You know what he's saying? We don't have a clue, but we're working on it. Ecclesiastes says, okay then, that is the limits of your wisdom. You haven't got the answer. You never will discover the complete theory. Uh, you won't, that human reason won't take you there. So then we need plan B. And what's plan B? It's fun, fun, fun. The pursuit of pleasure. Have a look with me at chapter two. I said to myself, come now. I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine 
and embracing folly, my mind was still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. And then in verse 8, look at the, ple- the other pleasures he pursued. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces, acquired male and female singers, and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Verse 2, laughter. Do you like a good laugh? Yeah, it does you good, doesn't it? I have one friend, I've known him since I was 16 years old, and we just seem to be on this wavelength. Known him for more than 30 years. And if, as soon as I get on the phone to him, or especially if I see him, within minutes, he will have me laughing. And he can make me cry with laughter. And after it, you, you just feel great. Laughter has a good, healthy, wholesome place in life. You know, you get two people from one culture together, especially British people, they'll soon be laughing. It's part of the way we bond. It's good, social glue. And the people who know you best, the people who love you best, you're probably the people you share laughter with. So it's a good thing. But ultimately, he says, what does it accomplish? He doesn't really do anything. Verse 3, he tries uh, experimenting with drink. Now, the Bible has generally a positive view of wine, beer, and other kinds of alcohol, but a negative view of drunkenness. So he's not saying he's just going to go out of his mind here because he says, I'm still guiding myself with wisdom. But he said, I tried to cheer myself, thinking that maybe if I, if I, if I experimented a bit with, the, with the, uh, altering my mood, I might be able to see through and, and maybe see beyond and find some sort of meaning and satisfaction in it. But the outcome still was that it didn't accomplish anything. You wake up in the morning, bit of a sore head, no better off. Verse 8, he got into music. He was a cultured person. He even develops his own choir. He's got male and female voices. People who are going to sing to him. Music is great, isn't it? I love music. Put the radio on in the car, get the right radio station on, and it can lift your spirits. It can change your mood. Personal choir. Verse 8, he says he he experimented with sex. It seems that he'd had a harem, a group of women, beautiful women, who were there at his disposal. This is king kind of behavior in the ancient world. The delights of a man's heart. Verse 10, he summarizes, I had it all. Now remember, he's speaking from this persona of one of the great kings of the ancient world. These are people of unlimited wealth, unlimited power. Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, Alexander the Great, and Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 4, it talks about Solomon's wealth. It's staggering. The the food, the the animals that were killed just for Solomon's personal kitchen every day. Every day was barbecue. If you could have it all, what would you have? Now just think for a moment of what pleasure promises to us. Because pleasure makes you a promise. You know, advertisers sell thousands of products. Millions of pounds worth of products are sold based on a very few promises. What is the promise of pleasure to your heart? If I had a really fantastic time, then I would be happy and my troubles would roll away. That's what people pursue, isn't it? That's why they go out drinking, open a bottle of wine, crack open the beers, pour out the single malt, 
If I have a great time, then I might be happy and my troubles will roll away. Why do people pay money to watch a comedian? Isn't that a strange activity? Paying money to try and get someone to make you laugh or sharing funny videos that they've seen on YouTube. Why do people spend all that time finding music, setting up playlists on Spotify, listening to music? Why do we pursue sex? Think about sex so much because we think it will make us happy. We think if only I have that, then then it would make me forget my troubles. But you know how short-lived it is. The pursuit of happiness is based on a law of diminishing returns. The more you drink, the more you need to drink to get to the level of experience you had before. So why do we still do it? A person once said that most men live lives of quiet desperation. I remember a friend of mine used to to work on a a bus, a Christian bus that was uh, based in a town, Kingston, down in South London. And they would talk to people as they came out of pubs and clubs and, and give them a bottle of water and talk about life with them. Sometimes people would open up about things they would never say normally. And one man came on the bus, and as he came on, he was swaggering and boozed up. But as he sobered up a bit and talked about his life, he said, you know what? The reason I drink is I'm bloody numb. I'm just numb. And comedians are well known to be some of the most depressed people in society. Kenneth Williams of Carry On Fame. I certainly wouldn't call myself a happy human being. All of the comedians I've ever known have been deeply depressive people, manic depressives. They kept it at bay with this facade. Laughter. Tony Hancock took his own life. Spike Milligan suffered profound depression, published a book called Depression and How to Survive It. Peter Cook, John Cleese, Ruby Wax, Jack D, Carolyn Ahern, David Walliams have all spoken about their inner turmoil. Stephen Fry presented a TV show documentary called The Secret Life of a Manic Depressive. It's about himself, and he revealed that he tried to kill himself in 2012. He said, there are times when I'm doing QI, which is a TV program that he presents, there are times when I'm doing QI and I'm going, ha ha, yeah, yeah, and inside I'm going, I want to die. These are the people we pay to make us laugh. Inside, I want to die. So what is the promise of pleasure? If I had a really fantastic time, then I will be happy, and my troubles would roll away, but does it work? Verse 11 says, no, it doesn't. Have a look at that verse again. Yet when I had surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was hevel, empty, transient, meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Okay, so we've had plan A was wisdom, plan B, pleasure, but we've still got the third option, plan C, which is projects. What you need to make you happy is a grand design. Chapter 2, verse 4 to 9. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself 
and the treasure of kings and provinces. Wow. Now there's some projects going on there. Not just one house, not just an extension, not just a new kitchen, not just a renovation, not just a new coat of paint, but houses, plural. And you notice how this thing kind of escalates. Okay, so first of all, we've got houses. We've got a second home. We've got a holiday home. No, I've got many homes. Then he says, I've, I've got vineyards as well. You know, I've got, I've got my own vineyards. You know, that wine, it's my wine. I made it. Then he talks about planting all these fruit trees and having reservoirs to water them. He's, this is a vision of an amazing little world that he's created. It's beyond your wildest dreams. He's created his own little world and he's even peopled it with people who he owns. Male and female slaves and baby slaves born in his house. Everything belongs to him. What does he end up with? Do you know what this sounds like? The Garden of Eden. It's the Garden of Eden. He's able to play God in his own little world. And the promise of the project, and it might be you're in a two-bed house and you'd love to live in a three-bed house or you're in a flat and you'd actually like to have a house uh, or you're in a four-bed but you know it would be really nice to have a basement maybe with a sauna in it or an attic that we could rent out to somebody or something on the back so the kids could play there instead of leaving the toys all over the place or maybe a garden you know the thing about Manchester is you only have a backyard I know some of you have got gardens we don't Maybe we should move so we could get a garden. Or, or then a bigger garden. Then I could spend every Saturday mowing the lawn. The promise of the project. Of course, you never think about the practicalities. The promise of the project, I think, is if I could build a great life, if I could, have, I could own property, I'd have a portfolio, what would that mean to my heart? Do you know, it would make me somebody. It would make me somebody. Then I would be significant. I would be someone. People would look at me differently. And people do look at you differently if they think you've got money. Some months ago, no, in fact, it was nearly 18 months ago, we acquired a new car for the first time in our married life. We've always had old cars. Uh, but this time we were able to get a new car because of a government scheme. It's a leased car for uh, people with certain issues in the family. So we're, here we are. We rock up in our street with this big car. It's brand new, shiny. And people started looking at me and talking to me differently. One of my neighbors came over and said, now you'll be able to do funerals yourself. <laughs> Another person said, you could be a taxi driver with that. Third person, interesting one, just came up to me and said, well done. Well done, Mike. And I, I, I didn't have the heart to tell them, I don't own this car, I'm just leasing it. But they looked at us differently because of the car. Of course, the new car just gives you many more problems because it's always getting scratched and you know, dirt on it. and It's much more of a hassle and a worry than the old car was. Significance. I would be someone. The project also, I think, promises us security. You know, I'd have a beautiful house sorted for life. I think this was sown pretty deeply in my own heart. We, we never owned a house or a home growing up. My parents, my dad was a pastor. He lived in church-owned properties. They never had their own home. And I think something got into my heart as a young person or a teenager that I really want to have my own house. In my 20s, I managed to get one with a mortgage when it was a flat. 
but you know it doesn't satisfy it's never that secure especially when the mortgage company tell you, you know, your home is at risk if you don't keep up repayments <laughs> maybe if I had a, that project then I would be satisfied at last I'd never want to move again I could just be happy there you ever thought that? The project tells, there's three S's here, by the way. You would be significant, secure, or satisfied. This is why estate agents exist. This is why they tell so many lies. This is why so many women stay up so late looking at right move. The grand project, the dream house. Do you know what? If you get the dream house, it stops becoming the dream house on about week two. Does it work? I mentioned earlier on a book by a guy called Greg Easterbrook. The book was called The uh, Paradox of Progress. I just want to share a couple more quotes from this. The, sorry, the, the Progress Paradox. He says, as ever more material things become available and fail to make us happy, material abundance may have the perverse effect of instilling unhappiness because it will never be possible to have everything that economics can create. You see that? The more stuff you have, the more material prosperity you have in your culture, the more unhappiness gets instilled in you because you can't have it all. Economics has created that. I think this is one of the reasons why African brothers and sisters in our church often comment, uh, how come you guys are so miserable and you're always complaining? You, you come here to this country, you see the abundance we have, and you cannot figure out, you can't get your head around it. How come so many of you are depressed and anxious? We don't know depression back in our country, and we have nothing. And this is what you have. You know, there's one couple in our church who came to this country for study, and while they were studying, after they paid their accommodation, food, and necessary costs, they, their budget was one pound a month. A pound a month! And they were really happy about it. He continues, Once focused on our wants, our thoughts can never be at peace. Because wants can never be satisfied. Not even a billionaire will ever have everything. It's not a Christian. Wants, by definition, are impossible to satisfy, though you may placate them now and then. Seeking to placate the pang of want through acquisition can be like getting addicted to a drug. You need to keep buying more and more to get the same high, and the high wears off faster all the time. That's why retail therapy doesn't work. And one final quote. As incomes rise, people stop thinking, does my house meet my needs? And instead they think, is my house nicer than the neighbors? John D. Rockefeller is estimated possibly he's the richest person in history. He was actually the first billionaire in America. And to be a billionaire in the early 1900s is going some, isn't it? A billionaire. He was once asked by a reporter, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And this is what he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud, although that would be interesting. <laughs> how much money do you think you need in order to live well? 
how much money do you think you need in order to live well? Now, studies have been carried out in America and they found that typically the average person will say twice the amount they currently earn. Twice the amount they currently earn. No matter what they earn, it's always twice the amount. How many of you are actually in some ways looking forward to retirement? You think that'll bring you peace, happiness? Look at this conclusion again, verse 11. Um, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. It won't satisfy, it never could. Wisdom, pleasure, projects, how could these things satisfy your soul? You're too big for that. You were made for something more. There's a greatness about you because you were made in the image of the living God to know him and to find rest in him. These things will never satisfy you. It's a chasing after the wind. You can never catch it, but if you ever did, you'd have nothing in your hand anyway. Therefore, friends, what do you think will come from living life based on wisdom, pleasure, or projects? You would end up chasing the wind, and it would lead to a life of quiet desperation. So I want to ask Christians here a few sharp questions. You ready? Firstly, how important is your next house move to you? Your next move. And where do you imagine it will be? And would it take you away from serving Jesus wholeheartedly? Will you make a move based on a house or a lifestyle that takes you away from serving Jesus wholeheartedly? You know what that's doing? Chasing the wind. It's quite hard to live to stay in the city when you get some money. Some of you guys are going to earn big salaries in the future. It's quite hard to stay in the city with a backyard and not that many nice schools. It's quite hard to stick and commit to Manchester. Yet, if, if we're going to see this city filled with communities of light, it will take just that. People who are going to stay here and not just dribble off to Cheshire. Nothing wrong with Cheshire. It's just that we're here. And there are very few ch good churches for the number of people who are here and this is the fastest growing place outside of London so we need many many more churches if we're going to reach people so a lot of us have got to stay okay and just be used to having a backyard and love it secondly how important is education to you maybe I'll sharpen it a bit more how important is your child's education would you put your child's education above gospel living so that might again mean where you, where you base yourself. It might mean how much time you're freed up in order to be part of a church. It might mean the amount of money you have available for gospel work. Do you think wisdom and knowledge are that important? That your child's life will be made or broken by the amount of GCSEs they have and what grades they are? Do you really think it makes that much difference at the end of the day? You know it doesn't. It's chasing after wind. I'm not saying it's not important. Of course it is. But don't build your life on it for Pete's sake. Thirdly, how important is leisure to you? Entertainment, having a laugh. Do you binge watch box series? It's an interesting thing to do, isn't it? That's like addiction. 
binge watching, spending hours and hours and hours watching some entertaining program, and then finding that you're tired or too busy to do Bible study, prayer, or meet with other Christians. You, you, you struggle to fit in one Sunday morning and one life group meeting a week, but most nights you're seeking entertainment for hours and hours and hours. Something's gone wrong. You're chasing the wind. Does leisure and entertainment overshadow the call of God on your life, on your priorities? Are you serious about knowing Jesus Christ? Not just saying, I prayed a prayer when I was 15. I mean actually knowing him and growing in him. Knowing and growing, it takes some effort. Fourthly, how important is the next glass of wine to you? How important is the next glass of wine, the next beer, the next whiskey? the next gin and tonic when do you start looking forward to it what time of day are you drinking more than you should regularly what are you trying to escape by that you know you won't find life in the bottom of the glass there are two ways to drink in the bible one of them is drinking joyfully with thanks to God company with his people wine making glad the hearts good the other way of drinking is the one that leads to obsession darkness many other sins and harm to the self which is yours he says he tried wine and if you go after it it's chasing off the wind fifthly how important is sex to you has it somehow achieved a greater importance than it should have has it become in some level the meaning of life if only I had that, then I would be fulfilled. Maybe for some, are, are you indulging in a virtual harem, which you can summon up on your laptop, your computer, or your phone, a virtual harem of beauties, a kind of pornographic harem fantasy world, in order to get it? It's chasing after a wind. And not only does it leave you empty, it leaves you guilty, shamed, and in the dark so how important is the next house move how important is education how important is leisure how important is the next glass of wine how important is sex if we build our lives on these things you know it, it's like building a house on the sand it comes tumbling down how does Jesus Christ resolve all of this remember I said last week there's a difference between living life under the sun S-U-N and life under the sun S-O-N the son of God life under the sun in Ecclesiastes is life lived as though there is no God just a flat horizontal plane of this world it's just whatever you can see that's all there is that's life under the sun it's life lived without any reference to God and life under the sun is life with Jesus as your king so what kind of king is he he is the better Solomon he's the only great king in history whose wealth was poured out on his subjects not on himself he didn't live to please himself he came as a servant not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many on the cross. He was the eternal son of God, seated at God's right hand on the throne of heaven, the possessor of unimaginable riches. And yet for your sakes, the Bible says he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so following this king turns people like us, broken, flawed, failed people, into people who are lovers of God and lovers of other people and turns us out from serving ourselves 
out to serving other people. Jesus Christ is wisdom personified, the word made flesh that endures forever. Therefore, if you follow Jesus and obey his teachings, you will get life, not death. And that is true wisdom, and you don't need an Oxbridge degree to get it. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Amazing verse. If anyone loves me, if you love Jesus, you will obey his teaching, and God the Father will love you too, and they will come to you and make their home with you. That is a fulfilled life. That is a life of meaning and satisfaction that the rest of the world can only dream of. And therefore, pleasure enjoyed from the hand of Jesus Christ under the good rule of God is wholesome and enjoyable. He changed water into wine, remember? He told his followers several times, be of good cheer. Why are you so downcast? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but he was always full of joy. And sex under the rule of a God like this is a good and joyful thing because it's fulfilling what he intended. True freedom in sex, as in everything else, is knowing the right boundaries, isn't it? And any project done for Jesus is satisfying. Projects done for him, not for myself, have an entirely different feel about him. You know you've been in a large and beautiful house that can feel boring and sterile, like you can't sit down anywhere. Or you can go into somebody's house, given over to Christian hospitality, and find a place full of joy. Make your projects count for him. Let's pray. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Gracious Lord, we don't want to live lives like that. We don't want to live like that. We don't want to come to the end of our days and be full of bitter regret. We don't want to chase the wind and have nothing to show for it. We're surrounded by people doing this all the time. So we're surrounded by seductive campaigns, advertising, and our hearts crave for it. We seem to be wired that way. We need to be, see through it and to live for you alone. Thank you that you've come into our world. Thank you that you've spoken to us. Thank you that you've shown us a better way. We want to live for you. Help us to do that, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together as we move towards our